morning. Uh, today's scripture reading is from the book of Acts. So if you've got your own Bible with you, about two-thirds of the way through it, and right after the gospel. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then Acts. Uh, if you do not have your own Bible, if you brought one of the ones from uh, up front there, it's page 785. Or you can just simply flip over your message notes, and it's on the back there too. Please listen for the Word of God. This is chapter 9, verses 17 through 31. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and he was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus, by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the Word of God. Well, thank you, Richard, for that reading of a rather interesting part of the Apostle Paul's life. Because when you think about the Apostle Paul, we think of him as the epitome of a successful church leader. After all, he was the church planter who took the gospel all the way to the Gentiles. He was that indefatigable Christian who refused to give up no matter how many times he was beaten or shipwrecked. He was the most significant person in the history of the church after Jesus Christ, wasn't he? He was, and he was, thank you so much, Richard. He was that brilliant thinker who uh, shaped Christian theology, which, uh, which allowed the church to grow and thrive and move into all cultures over the course of all time. He understood probably better than anybody else what Jesus' death and resurrection was all about. He was a, the most successful uh, Christian leader in all of history, right? Yes, he was. These are certainly true things. But the text that Richard just read for you paints a very different picture and suggests a very different reality than that which I just mentioned to you. 
We have here the apostle's very first foray into ministry. He's a brand new follower of Jesus. He's not even called Paul yet. He still has his given name, Saul, the one who was uh, uh, the, the persecutor of the church. He had, if you were with us last week, you know that he was on his way as a devout Jewish leader to try to stamp out this early movement of followers of Jesus. He thought that Jesus was an imposter and that they were deceived and that it was God's call upon his life to stamp this out by any means possible. But on the way to Damascus, something unexpected happened, and Jesus, who he thought was an imposter, showed up to him on the way to Damascus. He was struck blind, and, uh, and for three days he neither ate nor drank. The Bible tells us just before that. And then a man named Ananias comes to him and lays his hands on him and blesses him, calls him his brother. He's baptized, and he becomes a, a, a follower of Jesus. And now he is so excited, as excited as he was a few days before, to stamp out Jesus. Now he's thrilled to share the message of Jesus, and he jumps right into it, but we discover, if you read carefully through this text, that his first ventures in the ministry did not achieve much success. In fact, it's possible to read this text as if he caused more harm than good during this first few years, say, first few years, about three years of time is covered over the course of the text with, which Richard just read for you. You see, we find him at first, as you've seen that text, amazing the people in Damascus by his testimony that Jesus is the Son of God, the first reference of that in the, in the book of Acts. The Bible tells us that he increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. But instead of leading a massive revival, we find, what does it say? That he snuck away secretly by night, fearing for his life through Damascus. He made so much trouble, he had to sneak out of town. Uh, and then next we see him going to Jerusalem. Again, this is about three years later. I'll explain that a little bit later. And then when he gets there, he finds the believers there suspicious of him and unwilling to accept him into their fellowship. It was only Barnabas, that great encourager of believers, who believed Paul's story and got him admittance and welcome into the church. And so he spent some time there with Peter and, 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 and John. We don't find great success, however, in his ministry. He is very bold as he proclaims Jesus in the synagogues around there, but it seems that though he is very bold, he is not necessarily very persuasive. And finally, if you read through that text, at the end of it, it says the leaders sent him away. They sent him off, and he went all the way to his hometown in Tarsus, far, as far away from Jerusalem as could possibly be. Now, whether it is intended to be an ironic commitment or not, it's what's the very next thing that happens? After Paul is sent away, it says this, so the church throughout all Judea had peace. I mean, it's as if, oh my goodness, this guy is too much. Send him back to his hometown. We later discover that this guy, Saul, who became the great leader of the church, this guy spent probably at least 10 years, think about that, 10 years over in Tarsus. So then we next meet him doing great ministry. There was gone a time between 10 to 15 years after uh, his first conversion. Now think about that. He didn't jump right from conversion experience into effective ministry. He had a vision for God to do great things for God, but God had a way of shaping him that took a lot of time. There are rough, lot, apparently, a lot of rough edges in his life. Now, I don't know about you, 
But I find this to be an extremely encouraging fact about the Apostle Paul. It assures me that even though our lives have many stops and starts, there is still the possibility of beginning again, of achieving the dreams that God has placed in our hearts, of one day becoming fruitful, perhaps even because of our past failures. Now, I don't know how it is for you, but I know how it is for me that sometimes I get frustrated about my lack of progress in my Christian life. Things I think I should be able to do, goals I think I should be able to accomplish, things I wish I understood, I don't, and I can become very frustrated. So take heart, fellow traveler. It took Paul 14, we don't know exactly, but more than a decade of his life in a time when people lived a lot shorter time than you and me, right? And so here he is, a young man, ready to serve God, but apparently God puts a hold on his life before he can actually do what God has called him, uh, called him to do. So as we look at this passage and at this theme, I'd like you to think about maybe your own life. Are there uh, visions of what you think God wants to do in and through your life? that seem to be dormant or dead, or past failures have seemed to limit what you can do in the future. I hope today's talk will give to you some encouragement so that you can, like Paul, become a fruitful failure, (laughs) right? Have failure that leads towards fruitfulness. So let's take a look at this text this morning. I mean, I have experienced this in my own life. You know, uh, in the last few years, I've been thankful to be able to be involved with you in the planting of a brand new church. Do you know when that vision began for me? I'm 54 years old now. That vision began for me, I was going to say, when I was 28 years old. 28 years old. I had just finished graduate school. I had been in full-time ministry for several years. I was pastoring a fantastic rural church in Indiana. I wasn't from Indiana. I was from Arizona. But those people were gracious and loving to me. That's where I went to school in that, con- that, st- that country. Yeah, it feels like another country sometimes. Uh, in the country out there. But I knew that wasn't my life's work. I, where would I go? And where would God want me to plant myself in ministry? I began to seriously consider the possibility of planting a new church in Arizona. It was a dream that would not be finally realized for 25 years when a few people were crazy enough to join me in this little venture we call Church at the Chip here. Yeah. But as I reflected on this, I discovered that it was probably long before I was 28 years old when the dream first began to be planted in my heart. I had forgotten until I was reflecting on this that my very first full-time ministry experience was when I was hired by my home church in Lake Havasu to begin a summer ministry along the Parker Dam Strip 30 miles away. So between my sophomore and junior years of college, I was involved in planting a new ministry along the Strip there. So it goes back to when I was 19. And before that, I reflected that our family had been key laypersons in two separate church startups during the course of my growing up experiences. Um, 
And, uh, and I'd virtually forgotten that during my childhood, my dad was someone called the church extension secretary for the whole southwest area of our denomination while I was growing up. And back then, church extension was the way they spoke about what we now call church planting. He was the leader of the committee for the denominational conference at helping new churches to get started. So in a very real sense, and I only thought of this as I was thinking about talking to you today, it has been a part of my DNA, new church ventures, for as long as I can remember. Yes. Uh, so this is what I believe I was called to do. But I was over 50 years old. Think about that. What is it that God has called you to do? What is it that God has placed in your heart to do? You may not have 25 years left to wait, you know? We don't know. But don't be discouraged. Let us take a look this morning, and we may have to take two weeks to look at this because uh, somebody got a little long-winded on me today, and it might be me, yeah, uh, of the making of a biblical vision, the making of of a biblical vision. If we have time, we'll go to the second part of that. But I want to make sure that you understand this. Uh, in what you will see here is that there is a very definite pattern that is found in, not only in Paul's life, but as a consistent theme throughout Scripture. And you'll find this to be fascinating, I think, and I hope. And those three things are these. I'll put, give them to you. You can jot them down if you want in your notes there. The pattern of a biblical vision very often in the Bible is birth, followed by death, followed by rebirth, okay? Birth of a vision, death of a vision, rebirth of a vision. Let's see how this happened for the Apostle Paul. We'll see it in this text here. Let me, I didn't open up my Scripture here, and let me open it up for you just a moment. We're in Acts chapter 9. Now that we're out of doors, there's no reason not to bring your own Bible to church. So if you have one, I hope you'll start to bring one because I like to look in various places sometimes. I give you as much text as I can in the Scripture, but, uh, um, but I can't always give it, give it all to you. All right, so we're going to take a look this morning at the idea of birth and death and rebirth of vision in various people's lives. And let's begin here with the Apostle Paul. Let's look at the birth of a vision. We see that Paul, from the very beginning, early on, knew that he was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Now, keep in mind, until this point, there had been no apostles to the Gentiles. Philip had gone and shared the gospel with an Ethiopian eunuch who was a Gentile, and he had shared the gospel with a Samaritan, uh, some Samaritans up in Samaria. But by and large, the church was made up of Jewish people trying to reach Jewish people with the gospel. The apostle Paul was himself a Jewish person, but he was raised far away in the, land of, in the city of Tarsus, far away. He had lots of Greek connections. And very early, perhaps in the initial vision when God, Jesus first appeared to him, he realized that not only was Jesus the Son of God, that Jesus was the second person of the God who had come and given his life, that this Jesus had called him to tell Gentile people about the gospel. How do we see this? Well, if you can look in the verses preceding where we are, okay, um, it, says, uh, it says here, the Apostle Paul in the immediate section is now sitting blind and deaf fasting and seeking. He's experienced Jesus. And God shows up to a man called Ananias who's praying, and he surprises Ananias, saying to him, go talk to Paul. Okay, so listen to the story. 
Now, the, verse 10 of the preceding verses to where we were. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying and has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might receive his sight. But Ananias said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer my, for the sake of my name." Ananias was told that the man he was going to go talk to had a mission to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Keep in mind, no one had really done that before. And later, when Paul tells his own story in the 26th chapter of this very book, he says about himself that God had given him this vision to be an apostle of the Gentiles. So this was a dream that God, this was the birth of the vision. It didn't come from Paul, Saul. It didn't come from him. It came from God to Saul. It was conceived in his heart. That's the birth of a vision in Saul's life. But then we see hints here of what we now call, what I call, the death of vision. The death of a vision. See, Paul then shows up in Damascus, and he immediately starts to proclaim about Jesus, and although some respond, for the most part they don't, and he has to escape out of a basket, right? He rolls off, okay? And there, we, we, I'll explain a little bit, but three years of time go by during all this time, okay? And then, um, and then later he goes down to Jerusalem, and he doesn't accept, he's not accepted there, uh, and now 14 years of time, or ten, not, not 14, three years of time have gone by, and they send him off right there. So the Apostle Paul is not having success in ministry at all for the thing that he is described, wanting to do. And they send him off, as I said, into Tarsus where he is. He says at one point, he says 14 years he was in Arabia or in Tarsus, in Tarsus. And we don't know whether, where he's counting that 14 years of time from, but it's 14 years that he says. And then also in, in, in Acts chapter 9, it says that he was let out of Damascus in a basket. Now, this is a curious thing, because the Apostle Paul, I hope I'm not going to lose you with this, but the, uh, the Apostle Paul made mention of this escape from Damascus in the book of 2 Corinthians in chapter 11. And in the book of 2 Corinthians, he now, it's hard to explain what all that's going on here, but these people are doubting his authority. They've got some other more impressive teachers that they're trying to follow. And Paul is a very meek man. So he begins now very reluctantly in the book of 2 Corinthians later on to give uh, to boast, and he's embarrassed to do it. He just doesn't want to say how many times I've been shipwrecked, how many times I've received lashes, how many visions I've had. He doesn't want to do it, but he's doing it because he just wants to make these Corinthian believers feel bad and know that he really is an apostle. And then he says, but if I will boast, I will boast about my weakness. I want to read it for you in uh, uh, chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. If I must boast, he says, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying. 
At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Now, I don't know if you can catch all the irony of that. He says, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast about the things that make me look bad. And one day, the king, and I'm, li- not li- I'm promised as God is my witness, he's saying, I got let down in a basket. It was not, and he says, that's an example of my weakness. This seems to have been, for Paul, one of the most humiliating moments of his life. Ironically, the only reason we know about it is because he told us later. Because for him, he had come to learn that weakness and failure was often the path to strength and new life. Often when a vision comes, it has to go through a period of purification, of death, of loss of the vision. And that's what, in fact, happened to Paul for, as I said, another 10 or 11 years after this time in in Damascus. And then when we go through this book of Acts, we will see that in a few chapters away, a, a revival starts up in a community up north called Antioch. And here is a church up in Antioch, which is filled with all different ethnic groups as found in the 11th chapter of, of, of Acts. And when this happens, the church leaders send Barnabas, that same guy who had encouraged Paul a little bit earlier, they send Barnabas up to Antioch to see what's going up on up there. And this is the first time that you have an interracial church filled with an, an altogether Gentile church. Barnabas goes up there, and it says in the 11th chapter, and, saw, and Barnabas saw evidence of the grace of God and was glad and encouraged them to remain true. And then he went to Tarsus to look for Saul. It's as if Barnabas gets there, and he says, this is beautiful. These people are messy. They need some help. They don't know the God ways. We're going to teach them. And I remember this is exactly the vision my brother Saul had 10 years ago. I'm going to go find him and say, Saul, come here. Help me in Antioch. What you dreamed about back then is happening now. And now after 10 years of nothing happening for Saul, Suddenly, he is part of the movement that God is doing. The wave is moving forward, and he is now riding on. And through the rest of his ministry, he never looks back. And so we see then the rebirth of God's vision. That's what I see in this text. And as I said, it's a very consistent vision in all of Scripture. We have the birth of the vision, the death of the vision, where often we have to let go of that very vision. We grasp hold of it. And we we think it's ours when it's not ours. It's God. And sometimes we need to learn lessons so that we can can achieve that vision. Sometimes we make huge mistakes, and we try to accomplish the vision in the power of the flesh, not through the power of the Spirit. You see, so it's a great learning process until someday, fundamentally, God brings about a rebirth of vision. Let me give you a few other examples from Scripture. That was Saul or Paul. A second example is Abraham. Do you remember him in the Old Testament? And I apologize if some of this is brand new for some of you because I just don't have the time to look up all these texts with you. But Abraham had a vision as well in the 12th chapter of Genesis. Do you remember it? He, God came to him and he says, go, go to the land I will show you and I will make you the father of many nations, and th- uh, of a great nation, and through you 
all peoples of the earth will be blessed. What a magnificent vision. This is in the midst of paganism, and Paul, Abram himself is not even a follower of God, probably. He's just a pagan like someone else when someday God comes to him and gives him this vision. And so it says, Abram set out for a land he did not know and began to follow God. But there was one problem. You know what it was, don't you? Abram, who was supposed to father of a great nation, had no children. His wife was barren. So the vision, how is the vision going to get done? So Abraham takes Lot with him. I think he takes Lot, his nephew, with him because he sort of assumes that if God's going to create a great nation to him, he's going to have to will his stuff to his nephew Lot. Well, that wasn't God's plan, okay? And in fact, I'm not sure where Lot was ever supposed to go with him. It certainly didn't turn out good for Lot or for his wife, as you might recall. Um, and then, uh, so then later on, the Lord comes to him again. And said, he re reminds him of the promise, and he ends up in the land of Canaan, and uh, and Abram says, how about my servant, Eliezer? Maybe should I adopt him? Because I have no, God, if you haven't noticed, I'm beyond the child age of having children, and I don't, you know, I need a kid if I'm going to have a family. Maybe it's Eliezer. No, the Lord says it's not Eliezer. Time goes by, and then, you know, both he and his wife become very impatient, and as you know, Sarah says to him, you know, uh, Abram, if we're going to ever get this done, God might need a little assist from us. Have you ever made the mistake of thinking God would need a bit of an assist from you? And so they gave him an assist. She said, as was customary or appropriate in that day, why don't you take my handmaiden, Hagar, have a child with her. I'll adopt this child as our own, and God will do it. And so she has a baby, and that baby is the name Ishmael. And the Lord says, well, I will bless Ishmael, but he's not the guy. And now Abraham is 99 years old. Even in that day, that was old. <laughs> And, uh, and the Lord comes to him, and he says, you're going to have a baby. And he laughs. And Sarah, in the tent, laughs too. <laughs> Me have a baby at this age. And the Lord says, I heard her laugh in there. And she says, I didn't laugh. <laughs> but he said, but you will have a baby. And as you know, they did have a baby. That baby was Isaac. And that was the baby that God was going to use to bring blessing to the world. So do you see the birth of the vision, the following of the vision, the death of the vision, and then the rebirth of a vision, and in fact, some mistakes along, uh, along the way. How? Let's take another guy, Joseph. Joseph after him. Uh, Joseph had a vision when he was a young man. He's the, uh, the 11th son of Jacob, who would be the grandson of Abraham. Okay, so he's, he's Abraham's great-grandson, essentially, one of his great-grandsons. And he has this vision, do you remember what it is? Of his brothers bowing down to him. And not only his brothers, but his brothers and his father. It's found in the 37th and following chapters of, of Genesis. And they are incensed. And of course, Joseph is Jacob's favorite son, but Joseph has this vision, likely does not understand what it is. But what happens to Joseph? He gets sold by his brothers into slavery. Do you see the pattern here? Birth of vision, and now where are we? Death of vision. The, the vision goes away. And then Joseph goes, and wherever he is, he seeks to honor God, and God blesses him. And so he rises up in Potiphar's house and becomes a leader there. And what happens then again? He gets sent back to a uh, he gets sent back to prison, right? And then he rises up in prison, and then he stays in prison. Ultimately, then God uses him to become second in command to Egypt, in, for, to, to Pharaoh in Egypt. And if you know the story, ultimately a famine comes into the land, and Joseph becomes a means of salvation 
for his brothers. The, the, the holy family of those 12 and 70 by this time are saved because of Joseph. And the vision was true, but it had to die before it could be fulfilled many years later. Joseph is another example. Another example, um, how about Moses? I mean, it's all over the Bible. Moses was uh, protected by God so that he was raised in Pharaoh's household. And then later on, he becomes a man. He's about 40 years old. And he kills an Egyptian who's abusing one of his countrymen who's uh, Hebrew like himself, although he's living in Pharaoh's household. And when Stephen tells this story in the book of Acts chapter 6, which we looked at a few weeks ago, Stephen tells us that when Moses killed that Egyptian, he supposed that they would know, the Israelites would know, that God was going to use him to deliver them. So when he killed the Egyptian, we know he already knew God had a plan and a vision for his life. He just thought it was his time to help God a little bit by killing that Egyptian. And what did happen was that what was supposed to bring, out, bring honor among his people brought disrepute. Joseph goes off into the land of Midian, and he is over there 40 years. And for all he knows, the vision is done and over so that when God shows up to him at the age of 80, and says, i got a plan for you. Moses is not jumping to go do that anymore. He said, I, don't you know? And in fact, I want to say, I kind of think he says, Lord, you're about 40 years too late. <laughs> Back then, I had the resources. I had the capital. I had the opportunity. Yeah, you had what you thought you needed, but you didn't know what you really needed was me. Have you ever noticed that your own strength and abilities can get in the way of what God wants to do in your life? Yeah. So Moses goes back, and he now has a rebirth of vision. I won't go into it, but even Israel had that in a lot of ways. They had a vision to be a blessing for all the people. What happened? They were cast into exile, and then finally God brought them back. Even in the New Testament, we can see that Peter had it himself. Peter had the vision that God, Jesus had given to him. That he, when Jesus said, you, they call you Cephas, but I call you Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And what does Peter go out and do? But again, go, he decides to help God out by cutting out the ear of a, of a soldier, right? He's going to help God with this sort of thing. And then he, and he realizes it's all going downhill, so he denies Christ. What happens there? Death of vision until after Jesus is raised from the dead, Peter says to his friends, i got to go fishing. Time for me to go fishing. I need to get out there. I know Jesus has appeared, but I know I failed him too bad for him to be, ever use me again. I'm going fishing. And what happens in John chapter 21 in that beautiful epilogue to his gospel? Jesus shows up having breakfast on the side of the sea in Galilee. They caught nothing. And Peter and the disciples, the seven that were with him, go and they meet Jesus on the side. And what does Jesus say to him ultimately? Peter, feed my sheep. Follow me. Birth of vision, death of vision rebirth of vision. We're going to talk next week about some of the ways this works itself out. But I don't know where you are in this story. But I want to offer to you a vision of hope. God is not limited by your past failures. He's not limited by your ineptitude, as he wasn't by Moses' lack of communication skills, you know. He's not limited by any of those things. If God wants to do something in your life, he can and will do it. God will do that. And I offer even this church as a final example of that. As I said, it was about 28 when the vision really became real to me. I'll describe it more for you perhaps next week. 
but I had two failures to start a church before we got this one going. And you know what? It's as hard for me to talk about that as I imagine it was for Paul to talk about being thrown down in a basket by Damascus. You see, it's not easy to realize that nothing, not everything always works out well. So I offer to you a renewed vision of hope. God may be having you in that death of vision part, but have no fear. It may take a shape different than you expect. It may require change in your heart, but God will bring about good in your life. Without a vision, the people perish. You've got to have a vision for your life. Let God reveal His vision and then let Him change you enough so that His vision can come in and through you because God's doing something great in this world and He wants your inept help to do it, right? To be available to Him. Let's have prayer as we close. Lord Jesus, we are so very, very, very grateful that when you want to work in this world, you choose us to do it. And we have a hard time accepting that. And then when we do accept it, we think somehow it's all up to us to do it in our own strength. But often there are times of seasoning and difficulty that we need to go through. We pray that you would give to us a confidence that no matter what, you will accomplish your vision through us and help us be willing to see it and embrace it and to follow it. Help us not to be despairing, but to, peop but to be people of hope. To be able to say, like Paul said to King Agrippa many years later, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. May it be so. In Jesus' name.